it's so amazing how fast our society gets and how we just start getting into this, this groove. And he's right. Everything on that video, you just start going, ah, oh, he's right. And it's funny, but it's sad. <laughs> and it's funny, sad. And, you know, our family is just pulled in so many different directions. There's so many things we've got going on and Christmas. And then uh, we just love punishment in my household because we decided to move this week. Um, so, as you know, we've done three houses in one year, and it's just, whoo, you know, all kinds of craziness. But we start to get this image and distortion of Christmas and, and how we start tracking along and, and really end up way off base. And so this morning, I want us to kind of recenter ourselves on the truth that Jesus is the one. Uh, we've been teaching through the book of Matthew. Matthew writes from a perspective of Jesus is the king we've been waiting for. We've been waiting for a Messiah Matthew says, here is the one. He is the one. We spent the last several weeks talking about his authority and how Jesus has authority over everything, over death, over sickness, over weather, over disease, over the enemy, over demons, over everything. Um, We heard him talk about it, then he modeled it, and then last week through our teaching and our study, he actually sent the disciples out to do it. He says, I've given you the authority, now you go do it. Now, what happens is as he's establishing this kingdom, you know, there's some doubt that starts to creep in. Um, the, the kingdom, has, the authority has been established. And now, uh, if you were tracking, there might be a, what you could call a rebellion against that authority. You know, it's, it's questioning that authority. Is it real? Is, are you the one? And we're going to go through this. But um, I want to ask you this. How many of you have ever had a caricature done of yourself? I won't do it. I'm scared to. Um, because I don't, I don't want to see what they might see, you know, because my ears are uneven, so there's a point that, we're, that they can make fun of. Um, you know, I'm glad it's a drawing and my voice isn't an issue because I don't have a very manly voice. You know, when I pull through a drive-thru, I'm like, I'd like a number one, please. And they still say sometimes, and I'm, I'm being real vulnerable here, they'll go, yes, ma'am, pull around. I'm like, what are you talking about? But, uh, you know, I only go through drive throughs when I have a cold, you know, or I'm going to get some kind of voice app on my phone that's the Barry White. I'm like, I need a number one. I'd be like, I need a number one. You know, I don't know. I just don't have a manly voice. So there's all points about me that someone could make fun of. Um, and my eyes are weird. My nose is weird. Everything about my face to me is weird. And so I'm too scared to do a caricature. But I, I actually have some caricatures that we're going to look at. And uh, we're going to kind of go, go through this. Um, pull up the first one here. It's kind of dark. Dan's, our lighting technician, Dan, is going to turn off the switch. Um, it's kind of hard to see. I don't know if you can make that out. Um, Steven Tyler, yeah, right on, man. Um, yeah, I got no, no comment there. Go to the next one. It's kind of dark. Got a new movie out. That's Harry Potter. Um, the young Harry Potter, he's like a 45-year-old man now doing movies. And then this guy, <laughs> Hulk Hogan. I put him up because he made me laugh this week. He got married this week. Um, And guess what happened at his wedding? A fight broke out. (laughs) They were saying on the news that there was going to be a quiet, intimate ceremony and uh, no no big hoopla. And uh, on the video, they get one of his bodyguards and the paparazzi having just a throwdown in the background. And oh, yes, it made it on the video. And it will get leaked somehow to the Internet. It always does. Um, it's like, internet's like the sewer for all social things, if you know what I mean. It, everything ends up there. Okay, um, this next one, though, before we go, this next one kind of gets into what we're talking about today, and so this one can get into some very slippery ground here. Go to the next one. Who's that? Jesus. I, I wanted to put this up, and I said this is very slippery ground because we tend to have this ability to distort the image of Jesus. And we make Jesus into our little caricature, um, or we make him into what we want. And we start to uh, exaggerate some qualities that we like. We tend to diminish some qualities that we don't like. And uh, we end up with this kind of Jesus that we put our faith in and that we put our hope in. And sadly, the reason we do this, the reason that we will uh, distort and make a caricature of Jesus is because first thing is we want other people to like him. Um, we want to be Jesus sales guys and get everyone to, to buy into this bandwagon. So it's like, well, if you don't like this quality about Jesus, it's okay. It's a pick your plan type thing. You know, when we moved, 
you know, we ended up with channels that I, I don't even know what they're for. And Heather's like, we just need like four channels. We need like the news channel. We need HGTV. We need TLC. We need the cooking channel. And I said, I got to have some kind of man channel in there. So how about the NFL network? Or, you know, I don't know. Is there a guy's channel? So um, Jesus is not Spike. Did you say Spike? <laughs> a thousand ways to die. What? Um, you can turn the light back on, Dan. But this is what I want us to be careful about uh, in, in our idea of who Jesus is. You know, we distort him so other people will like Jesus. We also distort Jesus so other people will like us. What happens is, is eventually the buyer's remorse sets in and they realize they've been duped or we've duped someone or we've been duped and we end up in a worse situation. And so that's what I want to spend some time talking about this morning and making sure that we are careful not to uh, fall into that same trap. Um, we like to exaggerate these characters of Jesus. Uh, we uh, like to, to make all these, these adjustments and changes. But let me tell you something. In Malachi 3.6, uh, God makes this statement. He said, I, the Lord, do not change. Um, we need to understand that. I want that to be our really some, some theological uh, foundation this morning before we launch into this scripture, that God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we are not going to change him. We can be very bratty, but we are not going to change him. We can try to be spoiled kids. We're not going to change God. And so I want to get into this. Uh, go to Matthew chapter 11 if you've got your Bible. Um, if you don't have a Bible, let me know. We're out of the ones that we give away. And uh, we're going to be ordering some more. So if you need a Bible, I would love for you to have one. I do put it on the screen, but it's really important that you have, have yours and write in it and mark it up and and that way, honestly, I've shared this story. It's something you have to give to your kids or your grandkids that when you pass on, man, you're leaving some, you're leaving some great nuggets of wisdom, and uh, they're going to see such an insight into your spiritual growth and development through the notes that you leave in your margin. But um, I'm going to read 1 through 19, and then we're going to kind of come in and focus in on, on 16 through 19. So let me read this to you. Um, after Jesus had finished instructing the 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. Context is very important. What, what has led us up to this point, you know, Jesus steps on the scene. Jesus gets baptized by John the Baptist. He then goes into his, his ministry. He goes to the Sermon on the Mount. He teaches the greatest sermon of ever. Remember, it's 10, 15 minutes long. It took us about a month and a half to get through it. But uh, he teaches this. So he says... He tells us the life that he's created for us, tells us how to live this life. And then he comes down from the mountain and immediately goes in to this display of his authority. Then after this, last week we studied through, he looks at his disciples, he says, now you go do this. I've given you authority, it's your turn. And just after he sends them off, he goes on, he goes back into to preaching and teaching in the towns around Galilee. And when he heard John, uh, when John heard in prison, John the Baptist. He was the guy that baptized Jesus. He's not the original Baptist. He didn't found the denomination. It's translated John the Baptizer. And so he got to baptize Jesus. When John heard this, uh, heard what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Let me, let me stop here for a minute. John, put yourself in John's shoes or his sandals, as it were. Um, John is baptizing people. He's, he's preaching repentance. He's preaching this coming of the Messiah. John is hardcore, okay? He would be like hardcore old school, like waving the hanky, beating on a giant podium, and saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. And he is baptizing people who have repented and are asking for forgiveness and in looking forward to this Messiah. And so he's in the water, and he's baptizing, and here comes this man. And, and John recognizes who this is. All of his life had been led up to announcing the presence of this person, and he now steps into the water with John. And he says, I want you to be baptized. And John has this overwhelming moment because he realizes he is in the presence of God. There's something transformational that's happening. And he realizes who he's in the water with. And he says, I'm not worthy to baptize you. I'm not even worthy to tie your shoes. And you want me to baptize you? And so 
Jesus says, uh, yeah. So he baptizes them, and John, has, he hears God's voice that says, this is my son whom I love. I'm well pleased. It says, Scripture says, the spirit descended like a dove. It wasn't a dove. We tend to uh, over-exaggerate that, and this little dove flies down and lands on Jesus' shoulder, and I don't know. He may pet him. I don't know. It says he descended like a dove, means there is such a peaceful, calming experience with the presence of God in this situation. And John is witnessing this. He's experiencing this. Emotionally, this is probably so charged up that it, it, it's, it's going to leave a mark. It's going to leave a memory. Spiritually, it's, it's transformational, and there's all this happening below the surface. And then John goes to prison. And he hears about the things Jesus is doing. And he sends his disciples, whom he told his disciples, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. He is the one. And then he sends his disciples to Jesus and asks this question, Are you the one, or should we expect a different one? He wasn't saying, I don't believe that experience is negated. I don't believe that experience was an an emotional-only experience. I believe something happened there. But my idea of the Messiah is you're supposed to come and draw the sword and free the Jews from the Roman oppression. And so you're coming and preaching peace, and I see all the miracles and hear, the, hear what you're doing. Are, are you, are, should we expect, be expecting a different Messiah to come? You know, the one that's going to throw down, the one that's going to step into the Roman Empire, and it's going to be a true grit, baby. And are, Or what? What's going on? So there's some doubt. I don't know if you've ever had this amazing emotional experience with God and an amazing spiritual experience and then found yourself in a dark place. I mean, John had this amazing experience and finds himself in prison. Now, prison is a hard place. And I don't know if you've ever been there physically. I don't know if you've been there emotionally or spiritually, but you feel so closed in. And you, 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 all you have is that experience to look back on. And you begin to question. You begin to think. You begin to, to try to process and reprocess and understand. God, why am I here? What's going on? What, how do I deal with this? Are you going to free me or not? And we begin to feel closed down spiritually and emotionally and even physically And we say, God, are you the one that I need? Or should I start looking for something else? Or should I start adjusting how you should work in my life? And we start painting this different image and picture of God. And Jesus said to those disciples, John's disciples, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached. It sounds like Mary, did you know? I'm expecting Kenny Rogers and Winona Judd. You're like... The deaf will hear the lame. I don't don't know. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. He's saying, hold on. Hold on. Don't fall away because of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. Because Jesus would speak publicly. Other people were hearing him. And remember, when Jesus told the man who was paralyzed, your sins are forgiven to the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day, it was on. They are watching him very closely now because he has put himself in a thing, a situation where they think he's blaspheming or he's demon-possessed, and they are watching him. I mean, they're just waiting. They're going to pull him over whenever they get the chance to. And then uh, Jesus says this, What did you go out to the desert to see? John's ministry was in the desert. What did you go out to the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? What he's saying when he says, Did you go out to the desert to see a reed? Did you go follow a guy that's so wishy-washy and swayed by religion? That one day his theology is based on this, one day his image of God is this, and then somebody says, well, have you thought about this characteristic of God? And it rocks his whole world, and he doesn't know what to believe, and he sways, and he swaggers, and he doesn't understand what he's doing. No, he's saying John was straight on. He was, he was the line. He was hardcore on the line. I mean, he, he, he didn't eat. 
He fasted. He prayed. He was very strict. He would be the hardcore right-wing dude. Nothing. I mean, major conservative here. And then, and then we're not getting into any political thing, okay? I'm just saying. Um, or did you go out to see a man in fine clothes? No, John wore camel's hair. When he ate, he ate locust and honey. He was hairy. He was not... He wasn't very well put together. He's kind of like me sometimes. Did you go out to see a man in fine clothes? No. I mean, so did you go follow a guy that seems to have his whole life together? And you'd go out there and be swayed because if you follow this guy, your whole life's going to come together? You know, did you go see a guy in the suit, the jacket? I very rarely wear a suit jacket. They just bother me. And the buttons on it, I don't know. There needs to be a... There needs to be instructions on the inside of the jacket. You know, one guy told me at a wedding I just did last year, my whole life, didn't know this. I have three buttons on my jacket. He goes, always, sometimes, never. Like, there needs to be instructions on the inside of this coat for that. And a tie, forget it. Uh -uh. I'll wear a tie at a wedding or a funeral if I have to. Um, But I wear a suit, funerals, weddings, and sometimes I'll just surprise Heather when it needs to be dusted off and walked around. Sometimes I come out and clothes she looks and she's like, you really going to wear that out of the house? No, it just needs some air. And sometimes I'll put the suit on and be like, hey, baby, what do you think of this? <laughs> Always. Um, and then he says, then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send a messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way before you. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, which is all of us, um, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Can you imagine Jesus giving you that kind of compliment? I mean, this is like the well-done, good and faithful servant that he's saying publicly to a crowd. I hope at the end of my life and I stand before God, he's going to go, good job, son, I'm proud of you. Or, well done, good and faithful servant. However he chooses to say it, I want, I want it, man. I want to hear that. I want to feel that. I want, I want him to be proud of me. But for him to say this to, to a group of people standing around, like, man, uh, uh, of all you people, he is, there's none other. And then he goes on to say, but he puts him in his place. He doesn't let him get too proud. Here's what he says. Yet he who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he, which means John's humility is amazing. But he's still not the most humble. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it, for all of the prophets and law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. To what can I compare this generation? Here's where we're getting into our focus today. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. What Jesus is quoting back to them in this is a nursery rhyme. He's saying, you want to be high and mighty and very religious and look through your religious lenses and you want, to, you want to call John and say he's a demon because he didn't eat or drink. He fasted. He held tight to very strict uh, disciplines of his faith. And he was the voice calling in a desert. He was announcing what the prophets had said hundreds of years ago, that the Messiah will step on the scene. And you want to look through your lenses at him and say he has a demon. And then you want to look through your lenses at me because I will hang out with those people. And you want to call me a drunkard and a glutton and a friend of sinners and tax collectors and and I will go into those places and you want to call me all of these things and you're looking at this lens and you've just been childish. And he's quoting back a nursery rhyme. I mean, I can just imagine how high and mighty they feel. I mean, you know, when when you build your own authority and that's all you have to stand on is your authority... And someone starts to question that, especially like calling you out as a child. Oh, it just does something. I mean, I act very childish sometimes, and Heather lovingly calls me out on it. And it still hurts. And I love her. 
there's not much love happening here between, these, between this. I mean, Jesus loves them, but he's calling it like it is, man. He can be very abrasive. And we try to smooth that off in the caricature of Jesus, that he can be abrasive. But he's quoting back a nursery rhyme. Um, and let me read it to you in the message translation. This is a paraphrased translation. I love reading this. I don't study it and build theology off of the message translation, but I read it to gain some understanding. Sabri's going to put it up here. Let me read it for you. How can I account for this generation? The people have been like spoiled children whining to the parents. We wanted to skip rope, and you were always too tired. We wanted to talk, but you were always too busy. John came fasting, and they called him crazy. I came feasting, and they called me a lush, a friend of the riffraff. That's a, that's a cut down there, riffraff. I haven't used that word in a long time. Opinion polls don't count for much, do they? The proof of the pudding is in the eating. What's happening here is he's quoting back this nursery rhyme of the Pharisees because Jesus isn't playing their game. He's not fitting their mold. They have this image and picture of Jesus. And if you even go back to the beginning of this chapter, John had formed an image and picture of Jesus because now he's in prison and he's saying, well, are you the one that's to come or should someone else be coming? Because I've got this picture of who the Messiah is and you're not fitting it. The picture of the Messiah for the Jews in the first century and and for thousands of years was that the Messiah would come, he would draw the sword, he would defeat the Roman Empire that held the Jews in captivity and bondage and free the Jewish people. If you study history, you understand the Jewish people are relationally challenged people. They're in and out of bad relationships all the time. I mean... They, they get focused on God. They get into a bad relationship. They focus back on God. And God, we want you to be our God. We're resetting this thing. Forgive me. I've screwed this up. Help me. And God comes in, gets them out of the relationship. They live free. All of a sudden, they get complacent. They get happy. Then they lose the passion. And it's, they get back into another bad relationship. It's kind of like leaving the CDs in his truck. And you go back to get the CDs and find yourself back in a relationship with him. That's like the Jewish people over and over. Like, I'm just going to get my CDs and, oh, we just went out. <laughs> and so the Messiah, the picture of the Messiah is, however you want to phrase it, I'm sure we all have our mental images, is this Jesus that swoops in, like, I'm here to save the day. I'm a mighty mouse. Yo, here I am. <laughs> You're getting me going today. This is fun. But John... And the Jews expected him to come into Rome with authority, with power, and be a military leader and overthrow the Roman government, defeat the emperors of Rome, and free the Jewish people. And here they go. And then they're free to go back. You're back on the market now. And, and then he understands, God understands what's going to happen. The Jews' mentality of the Messiah is he will come to save us. When Jesus said the Messiah has come to save all. And we have to understand that God is going to do things His way. That in His wisdom, He understands that if He were to come in and defeat the Roman Empire, then it's just going to be a matter of time before they're back into bondage. And He says there's got to be a way not to just free one people group. There has to be a way to free mankind. And so the Messiah, that is His mission And when we hear this nursery rhyme being quoted back, he's saying, you're upset because I don't fit your mold. That that you want to spin the jump rope and you expect me to jump in and play your game. I don't know if you've ever jumped rope. I'm just saying, I don't jump rope. I don't double dutch. I can't. You know, when they get the rope spinning. I think every person does this. You know, I I don't... Jesus is saying, I'm not going to enter the marketplace and be like, hey, 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 hey. I'm not playing your game. I'm not dancing your dance. And and here's here's a takeaway from this. God wants us to have a childlike faith, not childish faith. Because childlike is is I want to play. Childish... I want everyone to play my way. 
I mean, we've all been around the bratty kids, and we, we, we pray to God, please don't let my kids be bratty. And, and we see this childish behavior. We've all been around adults in our workplace that you're like, that's a childish person. They were just a brat and grew bigger. <laughs> and we've all been around those people. And, and if your kids are that way, we love you, um, and we want to help you get your kids out of that rut. Um, enough said. Um, but child, childlike faith is impressionable. It's moldable. And it wants to be transformed. And it looks into God and a Savior and says, I want to follow him. I want to I submit my life to him. I want him to shape me and mold me. It's, it's like a, a child looking up to their parent and saying, I want them to invest in me. I want the knowledge. I want to, I want to, I want to walk in your footsteps. You know, it's the kid, childlike is the kid going up to their dad's shoes and putting their giant shoes on and trying to walk in the shoes. Childish is throwing a fit because they don't get the shoes they want. And God wants us to be childlike. If, if you think about it, childish uh, tries to create God in our image. If you go back to the beginning in Genesis when it says on the sixth day God created man, I think ever since then we've been trying to return the favor to God and create God in, for us. And, and God's saying, I don't want any part of that. Childish. I don't know if you ever played in the neighborhood. I remember in the neighborhood we would play basketball we had a goal at the end of my friend's street. And uh, I grew up in, at this point in my life, I was in North Carolina, um, where basketball is another religion. You know what I mean? It's like the religions of North Carolina are like Baptist, NASCAR, basketball. Um, and I lived in Durham. And within 15 miles, I think you had, had uh, UNC, Duke, and uh, just major basketball powerhouses. And their coaches were amazing. And we would play at the end of the street. We would play basketball. And we would play for hours and hours and hours or until the kid who brought the ball got mad at somebody else. You know, you set up the rules. You know, we'd play three-on-three three or two-on-two two or four-on-four, four, however many kids showed up, and you'd set the rules. Somebody would get frustrated that the rules weren't helping them. It's like, that's a foul. No, it's not. That's a, anyway, I'm taking my ball and going home. You ever experienced that? If you were that kid that took your ball and go home, there's a playground right out there. We want to meet you after service. I'm just kidding. What if Jesus said, I'm taking my ball and going home? His ball's the earth. He'd be like, good luck with that. Gravity. We have to have a childlike faith, not childish. Childish faith is never satisfied, and not in the sense that we hunger and thirst for righteousness, but in a sense that we always want God to do what we want. I mean, we, we honestly develop our children into, we, you know, we laugh and make jokes about it, but we honestly create that behavior. Because when they want something and we yield and we give into it, we've just put ourselves as a hoop. And then our kids start manipulating it. And we do that with God. If, if God does, doesn't do what we want and then we throw a fit and God were, to get, God were to bend and we get our way, then there's another hoop. And we've asked God to jump through this hoops. And God said, I will not be a God of hoops. I made you. You don't make me. I will not be a God of hoops. I'm not playing your game. You can sit. You can play the dirge. You can swing the rope. But I'm not jumping in. I'm not playing it. Here's, here's a question to challenge you with. Does it bother you when God doesn't do what you want. I mean, that's, that's one of those, you know, that's one of those big boy, big girl questions now. And don't answer it now. Think about that. I mean, when God doesn't do what you want, John, in this passage, is sitting in prison. No hope of getting out. I mean, he's in prison because someone didn't like him. And no hope of getting out. Does it bother you when God doesn't do what you want? Or then to flip it on the other side and say, let's see if there's some maturity in here. Does it bother you when God doesn't get his way? Now, I understand God's sovereign. 
And in the end, God's in control and he's going to do what he wants. But does it bother you that, that you may stand in the way of God sometimes? That our behavior, our childlike behavior, this image that we've created Jesus to be gets in the way of God and what God wants to do. Childlike faith accepts God for who he is. The rough edges, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Second thing is he will not change for us. Jesus died for us so that we can have a relationship with him, so that we can have this restoration or reconciliation back with our creator, but he will not change for us. He knows exactly what is necessary for us to be restored, but he's not going to do it in such a way that's going to create bratty kids. He puts up with me, but if he changed for me, then I I would be his God. Frederick Nietzsche is a great thinker. He was an atheist. Um, could, could, I mean, some of the things that he's written is amazing, but also a very dark thinker sometimes. He made this comment about God. He said, God either made man, and we are his biggest mistake, or man made God, and he is our biggest mistake. When we try to fit God into our image and expect him to change for us, then we've just made God less... God, and we've become a little G God over him. And he says, that's not my place. I'm not playing your game. I'm not going to submit to that level for you. I submitted to death and death on a cross so that you could have a relationship, but I'm not submitting to your little childish ways of life, and and I'm not going to let you paint me into this caricature, and you're not going to draw this image of Jesus that you desire. I mean, when we say he, he will not change for us, God takes our caricature, our goofy parts, and he brings them back into normal. I mean, we were created in the image of God. Through sin, we get weird. And then he takes that and starts to bring that back into normal. Let me ask you, this is a trick question. Don't raise your hand. This, it's just internal for thought. How many of you look like your kids? kind of reversed it to you more so it's how many of your kids look like you heather and i have two daughters laura is our oldest she looks just like heather abby is our youngest abby is me in female form i mean and i am i feel so bad for her sometimes because of that but she looks like me she acts like me i apologize for that too but Heather and I didn't give birth to this child and go, oh, I look like this, this child. We, we can't expect God to look like us. God wants us to look like him. And he submitted himself to humanity and was born in a manger, not so God could look like us, but so we could have a way to look like him. And that's very important and, and I know when we get into this, when we say, we, you know, I want to trust the real Jesus. I don't want to take, I want to take the caricature out. It's kind of like if you think about uh, some of the things we don't like about God, we try to soften those edges. And then the things we really like about God, we want to make those bigger. We'll take pieces of Scripture. We'll take His Word and form our image of God. Are you tracking with me on that? We'll take some of the things that He says you know, like, I long to give you the desires of your heart. Woohoo! Jesus has got big hands, you know, and he's got one of the sonic change belts that, you know, he's got big hands. I love the giving nature of God, man, and that's my God. You know, he longs to give me the desires of my heart. I desire lots of money, so he walks up with his big hands. Cha-ding, 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 you know. I like that, that Jesus died so that I can be free of sin and he'll forgive me. So that way I can go on living my selfish lifestyle wrapped up in sin. And, so, and he doesn't look at it, so he's got these big, just beautiful, blue, gracious eyes. We start to build this caricature of Jesus, and he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Well, I don't like the fact that God is a jealous God and that he hates sin. So let's make him blind in one eye or put an eye patch on him. Let me, I want to take the things about God that I like, and li- that's my God. The things that I don't like, let's soften it up. Let's change it up. We've got to understand context is very important to God of Scripture. 
Context is everything. Yes, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Yes, God says, I want to give you the desires of your heart. But we have to balance that with context, context of his word and context of our life. God may not desire you or I to be rich. He may understand that if he gave us that amount of money, it would impact our character in such a negative way, there's no way we would look like Jesus. God may not want you to be poor, but God wants you to be in his image. Let me, let me put it to you this way, because I, I hear people, you know, there's, there's different sides of this, where if you have enough faith that God will give you everything you want. Well, that's, that's just a way of masking childish behavior under the banner of faith. Or if you submit your life to God, you've got to give away everything and be poor. God does not want you broke, but God does want you broken. He wants you to submit to Him and have none of your stuff or your junk in the way. Context is very important. Think about this in context. In Exodus 20, in the Ten Commandments, it says, Do not commit adultery. The penalty for adultery is stoning to death. Now go, okay, so there's the vengeance. Yeah, they did wrong. That's wrong. I mean, I've had friends who, who, whose marriages have ended because of infidelity. And you want justice. You see the hurt in that marriage and in that person. You want justice. Hey, the God of Scripture says stone them. Yes. But then you go to John 8. And the woman caught in the act of adultery is brought before Jesus And Jesus leans down and starts writing in the sand. I don't know what he was writing. I can only speculate. But when he looks up, there's no one there but the woman. He says, does anyone condemn you? She said, none. He said, then go and sin no more. Wait a second. I want justice. My God is a just God. There's sin, there's penalty when it's to someone else. But I want John 8 when I sin and I want the grace. Context is very, very important. And understanding and accepting that all of God of the Scripture. Let me ask you this. What kind of people do you hate? One theologian said, you know you've created God in your own image when he hates the same people you do and when he hates the same things you do. Let me tell you something. God is all-inclusive. There's no way that God is going to be a middle-class Republican conservative, no matter how hard you try. There's also no way God is going to be a liberal Democrat, no matter how hard you try. We're not politically soapboxing anything here, other than that God says, I will not conform to your image. You conform to mine. If that requires you to be a conservative here and a liberal here, fine. You're not, you're not a Republican or Democrat than a Christian. You are a Christian. You're a Christ follower. You are made in the image of God. You submit your life to Him, and you prayerfully make decisions based on His kingdom and His will. And we begin to fit His mold. I, I heard a seminary professor talk about church growth and church, starting churches. He said, if you want to grow a church, then find out what you're against and get people in your community on that bandwagon. Nay, nay, I say to you, uh uh-uh, we are preaching Jesus. There are people in our community that aren't going to like Jesus. There are some things about Jesus that I don't like, but I am preaching Jesus, the straight-up Jesus of the Bible, not a character, not a plastic Jesus, not what society thinks Jesus should look like so that we can get away with our sin and we can be politically correct. We're teaching and preaching the Jesus that is God's Son, that is God in flesh, God-man, submitted himself to be a human, born in a manger, lived a perfect life, went to the cross, was crucified, a, a heinous death, was put in a tomb, was resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit, and was given the Holy Spirit when he ascended, the Holy Spirit descended, and has modeled this life. That's the Jesus we're going to preach. And, and, and let's let all the other stuff figure it out. I can't... I don't have the power to make someone sin go away. I don't have the power to, to say your sins are forgiven. I'm not the middleman. It's Jesus. And when we interact and encounter Jesus, that's when strongholds come down. We're not going to soapbox against people, against races. You know, we'll make fun of some other religions. We're going to make fun of ourselves. But we are not 
going to create soapboxes of what we as a church or we as a body are against. We're going to love everybody. I mean, our, our goal is to make Jesus clear and love people. If we get on a soapbox that doesn't do any of that, let's throw it out. Let, and let's, let's, be, let's be honest as a family. Let's call each other on it. Because we tend to get on our soapboxes pretty regularly. Let's do it out of love. Let's speak truth out of love, but let's do it. Otherwise, we're going to end up with some image of Jesus at the head of this church, and, and we're going to realize this isn't a church. This is a group of people trying to feel better about their sin. I don't want that. God will be the first one to go. I'll be the next one. And we'll go do something else that's going to make more of an impact for the kingdom of God. The thing we also have to understand is God must be accepted the way he is. I grew up Baptist for a little while. Um, Pentecostal for a little while. Nothing, heathen, Baptist, all those. Kind of wrap it in there. That's how I get here today. (laughs) Um, But I remember, you know, in services growing up, when the pastor, you know, it would be like they would preach like John the Baptist when I grew up. I mean, it was a lot of yelling, spitting, um, hanky waving. I mean, just getting in, getting in there, man. And then at the end, they would bring that down, and he would start praying. We were we were laugh, laughing earlier because we added a keyboard, and and uh, when we were doing the sound check, and I was doing the mic check, so when I turned it on, it doesn't call all the dogs in the area. Um, Andrew, our keyboard player, said, should we rehearse the end of the service? Like when you say, bow your heads, close your eyes, boom, the piano starts. It starts building that emotion. If we had an organ, I grew up in a church with an organ, so when that organ kicks in, there's something emotional about an organ. You know what I mean? And it just like, you know, it just gets, gets in there. It moves your spirit, you know? And then you start playing. If you grew up Baptist, you know what I'm getting ready to say here? Just as I am, you know, about three, four, seven, eight, twelve stanzas of that. You know, you got the whole church down, giving their life again to Christ. You know, I've been down here every week for 38 weeks. Oh, praise God. <laughs> and we sing just as I am. And if the pastor wasn't, we're going to sing it again. You know, there's somebody out there. We got time. We got time. <laughs> he does this with his hand. I'm sitting in the back going, oh, I'm hungry. <laughs> somebody get saved, please. You know, so... But we get in this mode of singing just as I am. Maybe when we think about accepting God, it needs to be just as you are. That we say, God, you're holy, you're righteous, you're perfect. Yeah, you look down on sin, but you love me. You hate the sin, you love the sinner. God, you're graceful, you're compassionate. Yes, you're jealous. Yes, you're vengeful. Yes, you're just. But I accept that. I love you. Why don't we sing just as you are and throw ourselves at the feet and say, don't change for me, God. Change me so that I can be holy, righteous, just, gracious, loving, compassionate. God, if you change, that means you're taking on my characteristics. God, I want to take on your character. And we fall in love with that Jesus. And when we fall in love, it's not this emotionally charged up, I'm on fire for Jesus, you know. I've run into those people and they're like puppies. You know, they're Jesus puppies, his, his salespeople. You know, we, we moved this week. And it was like Grand Central Station at my front door. A guy's trying to sell me water filters. A guy's trying to sell me security system. A guy's trying to sell me this. And they're all, this is the best product ever, you know? Like, I'm just so excited about these filters. They're just going to change your life, revolutionize it. You know, do you know what's in your water? There should be nothing. It's clear. But uh, we, get on, we get on fire for Jesus. And what happens about that is... You don't have enough wood, and I don't have enough wood to sustain that kind of fire. I will not be good enough. I'm not, I, I won't be able to give you enough insight into Scripture. I'm not funny enough. The music might not be good enough. It might, it might be too quiet, too loud, too, too contemporary, too whatever. That won't fuel that fire. What I hope as a church is not for us to be fired up, but for us to have a steady faith, a consistent faith in God. You know what, this isn't a hot, cold, or lukewarm, but let's be steady with it. Let's say, God, you're my God, and I want to be in love with the God of all Scripture. And that steady faith is what keeps you on that foundation when you're in prison, when emotionally you feel 
tightened in, when spiritually you feel like you're in a dark place, physically you're struggling, or, or the steady faith is when the job is lost and you can still stay focused on God and steady in that faith. Steady faith is when the prayers for, for the healing of the child not to die and the child dies. Steady faith allows that to continue on. Let's be a church with steady faith. We don't have to like everything about Jesus, but we have to love and respect everything about Jesus. There, there, there are things growing up that, that I didn't like about my parents, but I have to love and respect them. And I love and respect them even more because those things I didn't like taught me more than if they would have given in. There are things I don't like about Jesus but I love and respect them, and I hope to grow in maturity so that those things I don't like about Jesus make me stronger and more mature in my faith. Think about Peter. Peter, when Jesus said, I'm going to be crucified, Peter said, oh, no, you're not. That's not going to happen. What did Jesus say to Peter? He said, get behind me, Satan. He's like, I know you don't like that, but it's going to happen. What happened in Acts 2? And Jesus, uh, Peter stood up. And said that Jesus, you crucified. He didn't like it, but he, he respected it and he loved Jesus. And think about the transformation that happens as a result of that. And so, you know, with us bringing this in, what have we overlooked about Jesus? What characteristics and things we don't like have we minimized in our drawings of Jesus? What things have we over exaggerated about him? You know, let's be steady. My challenge to you this week especially is, is fall in love with Jesus this Christmas. And not, not, the, not the Jesus that's painted on billboards and the Jesus that, that gives us everything we want, but let's fall in love with the Jesus who submitted himself to a manger, who, who wrapped himself, the God of the universe wrapped himself in humanity. And he didn't come with a sword. And he's not going to meet our expectations all the time. But let's fall in love with the Jesus of Scripture. And what that means is we have to be in Scripture. You know what? Don't just take my word for it about the man in this book. Read it. Challenge yourself with it. Let it challenge you. And fall in love with the real Jesus. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you so much for this time this morning and uh, the opportunity to just uh, just really reconnect with who you really are. God, let's, let's just kind of get into this and have some confession here. God, I'm sorry for the times that I have been childish in my faith. I'm sorry for the bratty temper tantrums that I've thrown when I don't get my way, when you don't behave according to the way I think you should behave. God, I know I'm not the only one in this room that needs to confess that. And I ask that, that whoever, wherever, or all of us, God, that we just say in our heart right now to you, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for being a brat. Sorry for being childish. And God, I want to be childlike. I want to, be look, I want to look up to you and let you shape me in a way that is holy and righteous. God, forgive me for, for kind of painting you into this picture and image of, of my attempts to get everything that I want. God, forgive me for using faith to be selfish. God, forgive me for using Jesus as a, a, a sales tactic. God, we all fall into this trap because just as much as we try to see you clearly, there is an enemy that tries to distort everything that tries to distort the truth about us, about you, about your grace, about your sacrifice. There's an enemy that tries to plant doubt in us so that when we sit in, in places that either we've put ourselves in or just life has put us there, we begin to doubt and say, are you the one? Are you really the one? God, forgive us for looking to other things. God, in our doubt, let us question you. 
What I love about this example is John, John questioned you. He didn't just go searching for something else. So, so Jesus, when, when we have doubts, we're asking you. We're asking you to, to show us you're the one and not through hoops or we're playing our games or dancing to our music. But God, help us through your faith and grace and mercy. God, if there's anyone in here that, that not in an emotional experience and a just as I am moment, but God, if there's anyone in here that needs and desires that connection, that maybe we've been sold a fake Jesus and there's disappointment, or God, maybe they've been sold the, the hellfire Jesus and there needs to be some grace there. God, we just ask for that grace and that courage and that heart in person to say, God, I, I want to see the real Jesus. That just as you, the God of the universe, took on flesh and bone and blood and was born into a manger, I ask that you, the real Jesus, be born into my life. Make that real. God, there may not be a voice from heaven, but we do know that peace comes as your spirit descends like a dove. And God, when all hell comes against us, we ask that you fight that. That your authority and your power, not ours. So Jesus, we love you. Holy Spirit, we love you. Father, we thank you for your wisdom and your guidance. This week, may we connect with the real image of Jesus, the real person of Jesus, the real life found in Jesus. And may we celebrate that birth and our rebirth. Bless us this week. Help us to be selfless. Jesus' name we pray.